A quick warning that this episode contains references to sexual assault, plus some strong language. This is an episode about a dad. Amy's dad. Uh, I don't have a dad. Neither do I. But my dad is dead, and Amy's is not. And as someone with a dead dad, I can say that the reason why Amy is dadless right now is worse than death. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is terrible. Thanks for asking. Amy's dad is named Eric. He meets Amy's mom when Amy is three or four years old, and they get married, and he adopts Amy and her big brother, Billy. They grow up having no idea that Eric isn't their biological father because they're kids. Amy grew up in Michigan, and her dad was the best. He was the center of attention in any room because he was creative and magnetic and energetic. He did things like make furniture. He built a log home for them with his own hands and I'm I'm assuming some power tools. He could think of like the most off-the-wall crazy fun games to play. So I remember different birthday parties where he would like play on the swing set with us but would be so creative and come up with like Superman and Batman and Ghostbusters all come together and like we're all of these different characters. So Amy had the fun dad. The kind of dad who took them on high-speed hay rides. The kind of dad who was the life of the party. The kind of dad who loved to party. Eric was also a drinker. A heavy drinker. High highs, low lows. And those shifts made him unpredictable and volatile. Amy was eight years old when Eric came home drunk and told her and her brother Billy the truth, that he wasn't actually their dad. The next day, he apologized, and that was the last they ever talked about it. Eric was fun in public and violent at home. Very, very violent, mostly with Amy's mom. Broken noses, broken feet, concussions, dragging her outside by her hair. When I was two, he was going after her. She locked herself in a bathroom. He broke down the door, grabbed her, me at two, Billy at three, and locked us in a room for five hours. And then he'd be his wonderful self again. I mean, he was so fun. He was the life of the party. Those violent outbursts and extreme lows were always explained away, and Amy's mother did her very best to keep the children from knowing the full extent of the violence, but... That wasn't always possible. One night, when Amy was nine... We were sitting down to dinner, and he got pissed about something. My mom uh, ran into the kitchen, which was adjacent to the table. My grandma got up to get in between them, and he hit my grandma in the face. My brother ran in between them. He picked up my brother and threw him against the cupboard. And then my mom, uh, the laundry room was on the other side of the kitchen, so she ran through the kitchen into the laundry room shut the door and called 911 while he tried to break the door down. What happened after that phone call? Uh, So the police arrested him, and then there was some sort of restraining order. Amy's mom filed for divorce. At that stage, I didn't even realize that things weren't normal. I think there was a lot of, like, 
trying to piece things together. My mom did a really great job of putting us in counseling to like process the divorce. I think we all had a hard time at that point acknowledging like all of the horrors that were actually happening in that house. Um, so at that point, the lens was like how to deal with the trauma of divorce. Amy's situation progresses like many kids of divorce. Custody is split. Tension rises between your parents and one parent is less okay than the other. And so they kind of try to overcompensate. And that's the parent that Eric was. Like the time Easter rolled around. And he took us on the shopping spree. So I got every room of my Barbie house furnished, which in the early 90s, that's a big deal. Like, I had the living room, I had the kitchen, I had, like, the master bedroom and the spare bedroom. I mean, Skipper had her own bedroom. Um, And I remember coming home and talking to my mom about it, and I could see something was, like, off on her face. And at nine years old, I was like, is he trying to buy us? Which she then, like, told him I said. And so he then confronted me next time I saw him and was like, how could you think I'm trying to buy you? And you're nine. I'm nine. Um, So I was very much in, like, adult dialogue. So, yeah, I mean, we went on between nine and 11. Like, everything was as okay as it could be. Amy's mom meets a new guy, and Amy and Billy and mom move in with the new guy and his kids. And Amy's mom gets pregnant, and that's when Amy starts to remember. I was seeing a social worker in our school, and I started having a flood of memories um, about childhood sexual abuse. Sexual abuse at the hands of her now-divorced dad, Eric. Amy's school calls her mother and the police, and that flood of memories becomes a legal matter, and visitation stops, and the investigation begins. And it is frustrating because... Uh, It had been so many years after the sexual abuse, and there wasn't evidence to prove. You're 11, and so not only are you, like, reliving Mm -hmm. all these memories and going through it with a bunch of strangers, but you're also going to medical examinations and people are touching your body and like did you have a sense of oh like I have to prove that I'm right or like that this was real totally um and and basically like from the moment I actually told someone what happened I have felt like I've had to prove They go to court, and ultimately, there just wasn't enough physical evidence. But there were infuriating moments like this. Uh, He eventually took a polygraph test. And the final question was, uh, didn't your ex-wife say that she would do anything in her power to make sure you never saw the kids? So, like, everyone, when we went through the process, was on his side, trying, because he's so charismatic. Couldn't believe that, like, he could do something like this. And, I mean, also, like, he'd been, like, physically abusive to your mother and still nobody could. No, um... Dude, it sucks to be a fucking woman. Yes. Yes, it does. 
Amy's father is granted supervised visitation of the daughter he assaulted. So one day per weekend, Amy is with her dad, just pretending like nothing happened. Like the two of them hadn't just been on opposite sides of a trial. Which I do like to believe that everyone in the system is trying to do their best, but like, really? I mean, I think that we've proven over and over that that is not the case. That's one reason why hashtag me too was so important because of stuff like this that teaches us from childhood that maybe we're wrong, that even if we speak up, there won't be consequences for the people who harm us. So why say anything? Why make it harder for ourselves? Why hold ourselves up to that scrutiny? Because even though she was a child, Amy was scrutinized. Authorities wondered, did her mother plant these memories in her? Could Amy's father have mistaken his toddler daughter for his wife? The man who had abused her mother, her brother, and Amy herself still got to be her dad. While all of this had been going on, her dad Eric had fallen in love again with a lady named Pam. Your dad with a drinking problem. Correct. Fell in love with his bartender. Correct. The first time Amy had met Pam was in court, where Amy was forced to confront the man who molested her, and Pam was there as her dad's wife, as his support system. And now Pam and her daughter were there when Amy had to go spend time with Eric, whose charm quickly turned supervised visitation into full weekends with him. And Pam was clearly on her husband's side. Pam? I wasn't sure what to think at first. Um, and then she pulled me into their bedroom one day and pulled out the polygraph test. And I'm like 11. Um, and told me that there was no way my abuse happened, one, because he passed the polygraph test, and two, because she was abused herself and my abuse didn't happen like her abuse did. So at that moment, I realized I hated her. Yeah, we all hate Pam right now. Right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's like, (laughs) for sure. Um, Listeners are hating Pam right now. Hans doesn't hate anybody. It's not a fan, not a Pam fan right now. Um, Okay, so then Pam's just, so she just says that to you and you're like, okay, what's, what are we having for dinner? Pretty much. Okay. And then your relationship with her moving forward is just like, here's this wonderful adult who's so nurturing and told me I didn't get abused and I have to see her every other weekend or... And just pretending like everything was normal. I got really good at compartmentalizing. So what did compartmentalizing look like then at that age? Um, I think having to no longer acknowledge what I knew my truth was because my present was so such a stark contrast to what I remembered. Um... So it was more trying to live in the present and not think about what happened. Look, at this point, we're all pretty peeved at Pam, at Eric, at the justice system, and basically everyone but little girl Amy. So what we need right now is to take a little break, cool our jets, and hear from our sponsors.
Hi, it's me again. I'm sorry. It's always me. One of the things that makes doing terrible things for asking so special for me is that we truly have some of the coolest listeners ever. So we made this thing called The Terrible Club. It is a Facebook group where we get to get to know all of you and also watch all of you connect with each other and build these friendships and support each other through hard things and send each other birthday cards. You guys are so cool. Yes, my birthday's coming up. You can become a member of Terrible Thanks for Asking at ttfa.org. There's a donate button. $5 or more per month gets you into the club. Thank you to everyone who's made that such a cool place to be on the internet. Such a loving and wonderful and supportive place to be. And we're back. And yeah, we're not over the fact that the system failed Amy like it fails so many girls and women. And we're not over it that Eric gets partial visitation with her. We're not amped on the fact that Pam just reinforced every bad stepmom stereotype. Not my fave. But all that aside, we're trying to keep our minds and hearts open, even though all of us want to hop in a time machine and whisk little Amy off to a safe place where she can just frolic in a field with some baby goats and have a good life. So at this point, at age 14, Amy and her family are doing their best impression of a typical American family. They do typical American family stuff like go to SeaWorld, which in the late 90s was still okay. But something else was happening with Amy's family. Her stepmom Pam started to get concerned about Eric's wild mood swings, which were very interesting. Because he would go in these, like, spending sprees. Um, like, every piece of apple decor that you can think of, like, a red Macintosh apple is, like, everywhere in their house. Um, Terry Redland paintings, originals, everywhere. Um, these Boyd Bear collectibles, everywhere. Um, but then he would have these, like, dark days where he couldn't get up and go to work. In order for this to make sense to you, you're going to need to go to Google.com and put in Terry Redlin, spelled R-E-D-L-I-N. It's This man is prolific when it comes to nature paintings. So Eric's mood swings include splurging on nature art and then these extreme lows. And Pam suggests he go see a mental health professional, which is a great suggestion from Pam. Mental health is super important. And what was his diagnosis? Uh, rapid cycling bipolar. Okay. And what does that mean? Um, that he can have mania and depression in the same moment. So he can like go like really high spending spree to really low depression um, in seconds and minutes versus it being like days and weeks. Eric is put on medication for his bipolar, and he lives that way for several years, and Amy is still compartmentalizing, and all of this helps her get to a neutral place with Pam. Not good, not bad, just okay. She was trying to find her place in the family, and I was trying to find mine. Her daughter looked up to me a lot, and I, I resented that, I think, because I still kind of resented Pam. I mean, Pam and I had gotten to a place where we were able to, like, have really candid conversations, like me talking to her about boyfriends. I mean, it was a normal stepmother, stepdaughter relationship. 
the compartmentalizing also helps stabilize her relationship with Eric. Amy grows up, heads to college, and she knows that her dad suffers from bipolar. But watching him with his second wife and her child, Amy is irritated. Like, this dude was terrible to her mother and Billy and Amy, but now he's a decent husband and a dad? Now he's the one with a good life? One day, when Amy's 21, she and her dad go to lunch at the Fuddruckers chain restaurant, which, according to Twitter, is home of the world's greatest hamburger, trademark. And Amy just confronts him. We were eating, and I just looked at him, and I was like, how is your life so perfect? And I knew at that point that, like, he was struggling with depression. But again, he wasn't abusing Pam. He had Christy in his house and, like, didn't molest her. And so how can his life be so different and so perfect? And he said to me that um, he didn't remember details, but he always knew in his heart what he did to me. And so we had this moment of, like, closure. He told you that... He couldn't remember details. But he knew in his heart what he did to me. This is at a Fuddruckers. At a fucking Fuddruckers. <laughs> and you're sitting there with your burger like... I remember my therapist because I was uh, seeing a wonderful therapist in East Lansing at the time. She was like, I was hoping you'd get here in like three or four years. Not sure where the, <laughs> that moxie came from, but like good for you for confronting him. Yeah. And I like, I'd gotten everything I wanted in that conversation. He validated what I was feeling. So to you, it was over. Yeah, that was my closure. Until it wasn't. Even as closure, that's pretty weak. A whole life of watching your mother be abused, of being put on trial basically as a child, being told you made up your sexual assault, and the best you get is a non-apology in a Fuddruckers. But... A Fuddruckers non-apology is all the closure Eric offers her, so Amy takes it. It's better than nothing, I guess. And a few weeks after this lunch, Amy's phone rings, and it's Pam. And Pam has some really strange news to share about Eric. And I was like, he's in the psych ward at the University of Michigan. You guys need to come visit. He just had electroshock therapy done. Electroshock therapy. Now... Electroshock therapy, which is now actually called electroconvulsive therapy, is a legitimate medical procedure, especially for severe mental health conditions. But when they'd met, Amy hadn't gotten the sense that Eric's mental health was that severe, so the phone call was a little confusing. But Amy does what any daughter does. When you hear your dad is in the hospital, you show up. And when she gets there, her stepmom and her Aunt Mary and Uncle Richard are all there, in his room, showing their support for Eric. I didn't know a lot about electroshock therapy. Um, I mean, except for what you see in movies where people have, like, this metal contraption put over their head and bolts of energy going through them. I didn't even know that they still did electroshock therapy. Um, they let us know that uh, it would be a series, so it wasn't just a one-time treatment, but there would be up to six or eight treatments. He was quiet, and we were all trying to have small talk. 
Um, and they had to let us know that he was having a hard time remembering things. So we were trying to remind him of different fun childhood memories. And he's just sort of blank? Mm-hmm. Staring off. What was the event that sent him into the psych ward for electroshock therapy? So the version that my Aunt Mary tells me is that electroshock therapy was the the last course of action to try and heal him from his bipolar. Or you can't heal from bipolar, but try and like get him out of his depression. Was your dad different after electroshock therapy? He was a shell. Um, he just laid on the couch. Like I remember a Christmas over there after the electroshock therapy where he was in PJs, like in blankets on the couch while we were all opening gifts. He claimed he had lost his memory, so he wasn't able to work anymore. He was a mechanic and he couldn't remember how to fix a car. Um, he couldn't remember how to build furniture. He recognized everybody, but anytime you would talk about a story, he would say, oh, I don't remember that. You said he claimed to. Does that mean you just don't believe that? No, I don't. Then I did. The doctors were perplexed by his memory loss. The way he described it is not something that's common with electroshock therapy. Um, at one point, he had described to Pam that like words on a page were like falling off. Um, so they stopped the electroshock therapy after three or four sessions. Um, but some of the things that he was claiming, the doctors kept telling Pam that those aren't normal things that happen with electroshock therapy. Was the implication like, uh, he's full of it? That was my sense. Um, but again, at that point, I had just worked so hard to try and have as normal of a relationship with my dad as possible that, like, why would he lie about this? Like, he's in such a dark place. Like, we just need to be here and support him. So we would, the family would all talk about it here and there, about how, like, we weren't sure if he really had memory loss or not, um, but we tried to err on the side of believing him. After his treatments, Eric goes on disability. And Amy's life doesn't just go on, it accelerates. She starts a company, she starts teaching at the University of Minnesota, she gets engaged, and seven years after that therapy that left her dad a shell of himself, Amy is living in Minneapolis and she's about to get married. And her phone rings. It's Pam. Which is a little odd because Amy and Pam haven't seen one another in about four years. And every time I would go back to visit, I would try and schedule time to see her. And she would cancel the day of, sometimes cancel like while I was at the restaurant and just wouldn't show up and would call and be like, sorry, something happened. She was dodging you in person, but did you still have a relationship? You would call, you would text, stuff like that? Yeah, we would call and text every few months. Um, so we had a relationship. We would update each other on our lives. I knew uh, that she was separating from my dad. She knew about my breakup. She knew about me meeting my husband later. I mean, we talked about those things, but we didn't get together in person. And so maybe, like, I guess I would just assume maybe that's why she's avoiding me. Like, now I'm her ex-stepdaughter. Totally. You're 27. 
You have a perfect life. You're about to get married. Your wedding's coming up. So where are you and what are you thinking before you pick up the phone, before you hit that green button instead of sending her to voicemail? So I had reached out to Pam a few months earlier because my husband and I, both having complicated families, wanted to have a small ceremony. And even though she wasn't with my dad anymore, I mean, she'd been my stepmom for so long, I wanted her to be there at the ceremony if she would be open to attending. And I got a text from her saying, we really need to talk. When can you schedule time? So I knew this call was coming. I just didn't know what it was going to be about. What did you think it would be about? I thought she was going to make up an excuse about why she couldn't attend. Um, So I'm home alone in my apartment that I share with my husband in Uptown. I'm standing near the window, just kind of fidgeting with the blinds when she calls. She said that she did not think it would be a good idea for me to have my dad at my wedding. And I said, why? And she said, because when he had electroshock therapy, it wasn't for his bipolar. It was for child pornography addiction. So now my mind's racing, and I default back to compartmentalizing, because God forbid I feel emotion in the moment. (laughs) And I'm thinking, okay, I was there like right after he had it done as they were trying to like console him and give him a support system, which is really fucked up knowing that he abused me. I'm thinking that I am five months away from getting married and we have just finalized all of our details and we're getting ready to send out the invites. And I'm planning on him. I hadn't decided at that point if he was gonna walk me down the aisle but I was like planning on having him in a very, our ceremony ended up only being 10 people and he was going to be one of those 10. Um, I'm now wondering how many people knew about this. Um, And so then she continued telling me from her perspective what happened. And uh, she sent in the computer because it was really slow. And, when they got it back, it was still really slow. So she called to like complain about the computer. And they said, you're lucky that we didn't turn you in for what we found. And she said, what do you mean? And so the computer center let her know that they found child pornography on the computer. Like she didn't tell me exact ages, but she said they were really young and that he had uh, a thing with like innocence. Yeah. Because he started abusing me when I was, like, two. Fuck. Okay. We're talking, like, young girls that are children. And at this point, you know, she's got the immediate realization that she is married to a guy who uh, is a pedophile. Um, But now she's also remembering what she said to me. And so she's got, like, an immense amount of guilt that's overcoming her for how she treated me in my situation. This part right now is where Pam becomes a human to us and we feel for her because even though listening to some of this, it's kind of easy to be like, oh, Pam. Pam did try. She did. So she confronted him, asked him how long he had been viewing child pornography 
And she told me that he said um, about two years at that point. So he didn't own up to anything prior to those two years, but he did say he had been watching child pornography for about two years. And this was when, did she contact like the police and neither did his doctors? They were like, we'll just zap it out of you. Yeah, that's the part that's crazy is like she went to a series of doctors, um, like religious officials, and no one turned him in. Now, this phone call from Pam is upsetting to Amy on many levels. And one of them is that Amy thought she had closure before this, that Fuddruckers closure. And that was BS. And after this phone call from Pam, Amy feels like her entire life is BS. So even when he had the electroshock therapy, it was such like a kick in the gut because I had this closure and now he doesn't remember anything and I have to like be okay with the closure that I got. Knowing what I know now, I think he ordered electroshock therapy, one, to get disability, and two, to escape from everything he's done. So he'd have something to blame it on? Yeah. Amy called her Aunt Mary and her Uncle Richard, the ones who had also been there to help her father after his treatment, and they plead ignorance. She calls the computer shop. They don't keep records like that, and her dad had trashed the computer a long time ago, so she calls the cops. There's nothing they can do without the computer. There's nothing to be done. Nobody can punish her dad, and nobody can fix the past. You could not possibly blame Amy for being car-flipping angry for all of this. But instead, Amy sits in her studio with a set of healing crystals in front of her, and she just sorts through this confusing and infuriating mess. Like, everyone lied to me and everyone told me the truth. And it's because they didn't know any other way. Like, they they didn't even realize they were lying to me. And so to have these stories from different people about the exact same thing and to be able to compare it and realize how closely they fit and how much they also contradict each other showed me that I'm not going to get a clear answer. The only way I can get closure is to figure out my own truth and to figure out like how much I really do need to know for it to be my truth. Is it enough to say that like I don't have proof of being molested at two, but I was, and I know that in my heart, and I can trust that, and I can heal from that because I'm trusting my own instincts. I also met with Mary and Richard when I went home, um, and it was the first time I had seen them in person in over four years, um, and it was fascinating because in one breath they said that had they known everything that was going on in the household that they would have been the first to call child protective services but in the next breath they referenced times where we had protection orders or um, things were like they knew but for them to protect their the who they think they are today they can't acknowledge to themselves what they actually knew and it was hard for me to stay angry with them knowing that Like, they truly believe they didn't know these things. 
knowing that we evolve into the truth we live, that like he truly probably has forgotten pieces of it, that this gave him an opportunity to escape the memories by removing all of it. He could move forward without guilt. Eric got to zap his brain and absolve himself of his guilt, but Pam doesn't get to do that. And Eric ruined Pam's life, too. His charm had worked on everyone. On the pastor she turned to when she found the child pornography who said it was better than molesting children. On the doctors who also knew about the child pornography and decided to give him electroshock therapy. On Pam who took all these professionals at their word and is racked with guilt over everything she did to cover for this man. Eric was able to charm even himself. He was able to, as Amy put it, evolve into the truth he lived. One where he can't remember what he's done. Amy's clarity reminds me of something, and that is that sometimes being a shitty person is its own punishment. Sometimes you are so awful. You need electroshock therapy to even bear being who you are because the truth was too painful and too gross. Keep that idea as a little healing crystal in your pocket. Sometimes the people who have wronged us in big ways and in little ones are already living their punishment. They have had to evolve into a whole different truth. And that's what Eric did. And his truth now is nothing great. Last time Mary went to visit him, he had a new prescription, and Mary's his power of attorney, so she was like, I know you don't have a new prescription, what is this? And he had gotten some pills from one of his neighbors. Um, so he's, at least from what she described, still drinking and doing his thing, and that's partly why he wanted to live on his own, so he could continue down the path that he wants to go down. We did try to get in touch with Eric to talk with him and see what he remembers or doesn't to ask his side, but he has declined to speak with us. So meanwhile, Amy is smart and successful and luminous and strong. She too has evolved into the truth she's living. Um, how are you? I'm okay. For some reason, I thought you were going to ask the question when I first came in. Because you do tend to ask that question. And at that point, I was scared. Because I've never told my story like this. I've never been able to tell it in my body. And it feels good to connect the emotion for real versus just saying it like it's someone else's story. So I'm definitely not, like, doing great and wanting to jump on a trampoline or anything, but to be able to feel it in my body and know that I'm still okay makes me feel okay. I'm Nora McInerney, and this has been terrible. Thanks for asking. Hans Buto is our senior producer. Our interns are Jacob Maldonado Medina, Emily Allen, and Marcus Arsvold. 
Hannah Mee Cockross is our project manager. You can find TTFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as at TTFA Podcast. I'm on all those places as Nora Borealis, my crowning creative achievement. If you can, if it's possible for you to do this, I don't know what your day looks like, but tell a friend or family member about the show because your endorsement means everything to me and I need this. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson. TTFA is a production of APM American Public Media. Thank you.